0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am excited that you have decided to spend some time with me and my guest today, Scott Miller, friend of the show, is back. He has a new book coming out, but more than that, has always been a great conversationalist around leadership and how to show up well for others in the workplace. He serves as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, leading the strategy development and publication of best-selling books and thought leadership award-winning multi-volume mess to success series, including management mess to leadership success, 30 challenges to become the leader you would follow, marketing mess to brand success, 30 challenges to transform your organization's brand and your own, and the forthcoming job mess to career success, which comes out early next year, He's the co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, and has a new book out in real time called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. And it features insights and interviews with leading thinkers of our time, including Seth Godin, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, General Stanley McChrystal, Liz Weissman, and more. So, Uh, Yeah, I know. You've also included some stories about me. It's not the reason why you're on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Scott Jeffrey Miller to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. Dave Hollis,
1: thank you for the spotlight. Thank you for the platform, the friendship for having me back. I am honored to be featuring you as one of the 30 master mentors in the first volume of a 10-volume series. I think your chapter is probably one of the ones that will be relatable the most. Your insight, we'll talk about it, is vulnerability. You have, in many ways, popularized that in the
0: corporate world as well. So delighted to be here, Dave. Oh, man, thank you. I'm glad that uh, you're back. I'm glad that you've written this book. I do question if the credibility of the, the material isn't compromised by including me. But I am happy to be among these amazing names. We're going to get to the most recent book soon. But before we do, uh, for anyone who is not yet familiar with who you are or what you do, as much as I gave a little introduction of what you do on paper, I'm wondering if maybe in your words, you could give us what you believe to be your reason for being. Why, Scott, are you here and what do you hope to do while you are? Well, my reason for being on this
1: earth clearly is a parent, and I never thought that. I was single till I was 41, and then all of a sudden, I met this beautiful woman in the gym. We got married in a whirlwind romance and had three boys in five years, not so dissimilar to you and your, um, the, the mother of your children, and plus your girl. And so we have three boys now, and much as I never thought I wanted to be a parent. In fact, Dave, secret, I didn't want to be a parent. I was very happy as a bachelor, got married, fell in love, not in that order. And then we had three sons. And so now my calling in life clearly is to raise these three gentlemen, an otherwise rough and tumble world. Uh, I think my professional calling is that I'm an aggregator. I'm a pollinator. I'm not sure I've ever had an original idea in my, in my, in my life. Most of us haven't. But I, I, I'm very comfortable now becoming an aggregator and then a pollinator of sharing wisdom from people like you to a very broad audience. I'm privileged now to host the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It's 7 million. Each Tuesday. And so my, my calling now is to raise people up, give people a platform, and allow people to learn from others. So I'm coming off, not so dissimilar to you, a 25-year corporate career. And I'm a little bit free of the, the good and bad shackles of that. And I'm doing my best to um live my mission, both personally and professionally now.
0: What a what an awesome answer. I love it. And the great thing is the professional labor. And the sharing of stories, I, I love the willingness to just own, yeah, you're someone who's looking to hunt and gather yeah. amazingness that you might feed the masses with some of what you've hunted and gathered. It's, it's such a great uh, a great way to put it, but that your children, this primary reason for being may in fact end up becoming beneficiaries of the work that you do because of your ability to also share some of the insights that you end up seeing in the world with them maybe also helps them become decent humans. What a nice uh, side benefit.
1: That's called Parenting Mess to Launch Success, volume two, 2026, stand by. <laughs>
0: oh, it's coming. I love this.
1: <laughs> so is, so is um, Marriage Mess to Something Success. I just hit 12 years and I'm not saying it's a success. We, we're, we're convinced, my wife and I, that our children plot every night how they're gonna destroy our marriage today. It didn't work yesterday. So today is the day they're going to bring us to our knees.
0: So good. So most of your work tends to be around leadership and how to be a great leader. And I'm curious if this was just something that you found yourself drawn into or that you kind of edged your way into because of the way that you had personal passion for leadership generally. What was kind of the genesis of
1: Yeah. So not so dissimilar to you. I started my career at the Disney company, right? I'm from Orlando, Florida. Disney was the hometown company. Went to work for Disney for four years. Had a great run. They invited me to leave, which is how Disney says you're fired. And so here I am, a single Catholic boy living in Orlando. Where do I move? Well, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are, of course, right? I mean, what a great great trajectory to a love life of admiration to move to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are. There's no Catholics in Utah. So, that was 25 years ago. I got hired by the Franklin Covey Company. Of you, of course, know Stephen Covey, the author of the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it sold 40 million copies. You know, developed this worldwide leadership firm. I worked my way up in this organization. I mean, it, it could have been a real estate company, quite frankly, Dave. It could have been a pharmaceutical company. It happened to be a leadership company. I learned of them from my work at Disney. I was a leader, a pretty crappy one for most of my 20s and 30s. Became incrementally better in my 40s. Stopped being a leader in my 50s, at least a formal leader, because leadership's tough, right? I mean, it is unrelenting and unrewarding. And so I decided to, after 10 years of being the chief marketing officer of this global brand, you know, an officer in a public company, it was a great run. I needed to change. But I've always been passionate about leadership. I was a leader in my first job back at a bakery and a restaurant and that sort of thing. And always been, you know, kind of, you know, be- be the leader or be led by someone else so i figured no one could be worse than me i probably was wrong but as i have navigated this life of leadership working for the world's largest leadership company i've learned so much you and i have had some great talks about this and so this current book master mentors is really my chance to shine a light on the people that i think are great leaders doesn't mean they don't have messes they have successes but they you know put themselves out there to say hey learn from me learn from my mistakes learn from my lessons uh, and so this current book that launches you know, in September is really kind of a chance for me to now take some of what I've learned, combine it with what others have learned, and offer it to others in a way that allows them to have access to 30 great people.
0: Your answer is like, the, it's like one of the best answers. I hope that the people at home are, are taking note of your ability to talk about your career and your experience in a way that also is humble because you don't have to be like you you've had an extraordinary run and there I think is every reason to be proud of and tout even um, some of what you've accomplished and yet I think that there is a disarming way with which you're able to you know oh yeah you you may not have been uh, you know someone who had it all together or the best leader or or whatever it might mean Um, and then there's something I think there's something in that that has probably served you so well as a leader it's no surprise that you had as the most recent series of stuff that you were working on, this idea of mess, because it is just part and parcel with what happens in life and certainly what happens inside of leadership. But there's one line that you have used, this idea of embracing your mess. And I think just, you know, whether it's in your answer or in the work of this mess series, embracing it, learning from it, turning it into something that can be the catalyst for growth or some pivot point is the difference between a great leader and a leader who ends up being left behind or asked to leave? Talk to me about what embracing your mess as a leader looks like.
1: You know, I was interviewed on a radio program this morning, a national radio program about how to be a mentor, because the name of the book I'm launching is Master Mentors. And I really said to them, you know, there's an art and a science by being a mentor. Um, a mentor is someone who is wise and smart, and that when they mentor you, they don't try to turn you into small versions of them. They recognize that you're on your journey. And I think the best mentors, are the ones that teach through their mistakes. I, I learn more about how to build my marriage from people who've had a divorce than I do from people who stayed married. I learn more about how to build my business from those who've had a bankruptcy and those who made it and kept a billion dollars. I tend to learn more from people who exercise vulnerability and teach through their mistakes. Now that doesn't mean that you're open kimono on everything and you license you know, bad behavior. No, but I'll tell you, this will sound convenient. But Dave, it was reading your book, Get Out of Your Own Way, two years ago, or quite not that long ago, when I had an epiphany. And that was you, you convinced me. This is this is not self-serving. I share this on a lot of podcasts. You taught me that vulnerability is a leadership competency, just like calculating EBITDA, just like supply chain inventory turns. Vulnerability is a leadership competency, because I think gone are the days where you're in my generation. We report to a hierarchical structure. The people are unrelatable. If you're on the 11th floor, I can't look you in the eye. That was the 80s and the 90s. And for some of us white guys, we clawed our way into the early 2000s. That's gone. The average tenure now for someone is maybe on the outset 18 months. 14 months is a robust career right now. People want to relate to their bosses. They want to learn from their leaders. They want to know what your mistakes were. So I'm passionate about about inspiring in leaders the confidence and the humility to own your mess. But don't just own your mess, teach through it. Because it's when you own your mess, you allow others to own theirs. And people, I'll tell you, people don't quit leaders who love them. People quit bad leaders and corrupt cultures. They find it hard to go across the street for one more dollar an hour or one more percent commission or beer on tap on Thursdays at four o'clock. They stay with leaders who love them, leaders that can relate to that, you know, again, they don't confess all their sins, but are willing to teach their their mistakes. It's a long answer to your question, but I I, I give you credit for this because it was in your book that I think you convinced me that leadership or that vulnerability is a leadership compliment. I believe it's such a, well,
0: it's such a lovely compliment. Thank you. I appreciate it. What's even maybe more bizarre, and I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I was paralyzed by the fear of being as vulnerable as writing that first book required. And honestly, as I'm you know, like 60 days away from my next one coming out, there's a lot of vulnerability in it. And if it weren't for the fact that I had responses like the one that you were giving me in real time, I would have the same kind of emotion of wondering if it's okay. And the thing I know for sure is that the vulnerability, number one, made me connect to the universal struggle that exists in everyone who's interested in something more for their life. There isn't a single person who's trying to build something greater in themselves or reach for, uh, you know, whether it's self-actualizing their potential or honoring their creator or whatever you want to call it, that isn't going to struggle along the way. And by representing that I struggle, there was this, oh, well, I do too kind of reaction But it's in pointing out that struggle to your point (laughs) that you're able to maybe draw some aha moments of how if you are also in the struggle boat that there is an oar that can help you paddle shore.
1: I think Brene Brown named it and popularized it. I think Dave Hollis made it safe to practice it.
0: Oh, you're so sweet. I'm curious. I mean, you worked inside of a place that is the like Everest of places for leadership resources, but did you yourself have someone that you looked up to that demonstrated healthy leadership all along the way? Or was this something that you also gleaned from both healthy and unhealthy modeling?
1: Chuck, Paula, Charles, Bill, David, Colleen, Todd, Bob. Yeah. I can name all the leaders that believed in me more than I believed in myself. Took me aside and said, Scott, you can't say that again. Scott, I understand your intent, but your technique is diminishing your credibility. You've got to look at it this way. You've got to stop doing that. You've got to stop saying that. Uh, so yes, I have worked. I have had a, generally had a great run of leadership. There were leaders that style was different than mine. We had different maybe values, but I've generally been blessed with working for leaders that always believed in me. And in many cases, in the moment, would we'll close the door and say, "Scott, let me tell you about a doozy." As I was confessing. A mistake I'd made or a contract I'd signed that I shouldn't have, whatever. You know, you've been there, right? On the corporate side or whatever. And and they closed the door, not to not to give permission for my issue, but to say you're not alone. Here's what I learned. What have you learned never again? Right. And so this is this was the hallmark of my career was being led by great leaders that had the vulnerability to call me aside and have a high courage conversation with me and model vulnerability with me or make it safe for me to. You know, share my own fears and truths. Not everyone's had that same journey. I had some less stellar bosses at Disney. I had some great bosses at Disney. At the end of the day, you know, not everyone should be a leader of people. Not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. Not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. Not everyone should be a leader of people. Why does it take twelve years to be an anesthesiologist, but it takes like twelve minutes to get promoted from being an individual producer to being a leader of people? Because by the way, leaders can wreak a lot of harm on a lot of people. And I've done that, not in not, not because I'm a sociopath, but because I was a good person, but a bad leader and didn't understand what that meant. Now, in my 50s, I have the benefit of you know hindsight, of course, and all of us. But I think too often, Dave, in organizations, we promote people to be leaders and they shouldn't. And we end up wrecking their careers because that wasn't the right calling for them. If you are a leader in an organization, make sure you are luring people into leadership for the right reasons. And it's the right next step for them not just because they're the top salesperson or they're the best customer service agent. Those do not make great leaders all the time. In fact, rarely are the skills that make the individual producer the same competencies that make a great leader of those same people. They're often inversely correlated.
0: So I, I love that so much. And it's so lost. I think in like a traditional hierarchical corporate it structure, it's just a lost thing. It's time served. Who's who's yeah. next? And it's yeah. not really considered. Yeah. Is this competency-wise a perfect or great fit? Yeah. One of the yeah. things I think I've learned most from you in our friendship through time is this conversation around courageous conversations. I, like the, the very, one of the very first things that we spent time talking about was something that was akin to the willingness to tell someone that they have salad in their teeth, you know, like that they've got bad breath, like finding a way to do it that's respectful, but that also shows how much you care. I love that Kim Scott is one of the people featured in the book because her radical candor is just like part and parcel with that message, but that as a sign of mature. Leadership is something that is earned and appreciated over time because of that willingness to push into to tough spots. Well,
1: it's a sign of love. It's do you love, honestly, do you love your team members enough to move outside your comfort zone and discuss the undiscussables? Can I can I recap the Kim Scott story? Oh, yeah. So, Kim Scott, of course, our mutual friend with the book Radical Candor. She wrote a new book called Just Work. She's one of the 30 mentors. She shares an amazing story where when she was working at Google, she was once in a meeting with Eric Schmidt, you know, then the CEO, now that I think chairman, chairman emeritus and one of the co-founders. And she was in a meeting with um, one of the co-founders and the chairman and Cheryl um, Sandberg, who was then her boss at Google. And she was giving a presentation at the end of the presentation that she thought went quite well. Cheryl called her back to her office and, and Kim Scott said, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. And Cheryl Sandberg says, so how do you think that went? And Kim Scott, who was used to giving presentations and raising money for VC firms, I think it went great. And Cheryl basically said, No, you sounded like an idiot in there. Those are the words that Cheryl used, is every third word was he goes and she goes and she was like and I was like and they and and, and I was like, and and you had this dismissive thing you do with your hand. And 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 Kim recounts, recounts in this conversation that. She was a little bit taken aback by Cheryl's sort of intervention. Like, I've had conversations like this for decades and been very successful. Were you really listening to me? And then I guess she did this dismissive wave of her hand when Cheryl often offered to get her a speech coach. And that's when Kim realized Cheryl Sandberg loves me. She wants to protect me from myself. She sees a blind spot in me that I don't see. What's interesting, I just had Kim Scott back on the podcast for the word Just Work, the book, the book Just Work. Not a single um, not a single like, not a single vocalized pause. She clearly has mastered this. And the, the whole conversation in the book is around radical candor, is too many leaders practice what she calls ruinous empathy, right? Where you're 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 not you don't deserve to be a leader if you're not willing to have delicate and uncomfortable conversations. And it requires a balance of courage, which I have no shortage of, and neither do you, with an abundance of consideration, which I lack, diplomacy. So do I. <laughs> right? right? But I mean, and most of us kind of fall to one end. We either will talk to anybody about anything that sometimes goes well and sometimes doesn't. And others of us are so shy and retiring where we're unwilling to talk straight. So we obfuscate. We beat around the bush. And I tell you, the person who has the radical candor skill, balances both, is a life changer. This is the leader who literally can, can intervene in self-defeating behaviors that no leader before them had the guts or the courage or the diplomacy to talk to you about?
0: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. I was having this conversation with Heidi two days ago. I had a dream, a very, very vivid dream about the Walt Were Disney Were you and company.
1: I skiing in Utah together and a lot pre-ski in the vu Hut? Up nope, meeting?
0: that was not part of the dream, as it turns out. And it should, we should just manifest that anyway. But I had a very vivid, very lucid dream about the Walt Disney Company that I was um, like still working there. Ah. And, I, and I was, uh, I woke up. And I actually the the emotion that I felt this is so it's such, it's such a strange confession but the emotion that I felt was if only I had invested myself in personal development while I was leading inside of the company right because I made this move into the work that I do today when I left corporate mm-hmm. and what I when I left I can confess I thought that I was the most exceptional leader I. Do not struggle in confidence necessarily. My hubris precedes me. And yet, what I can see now, I hadn't read, you know, as many of the things that I have now read when it comes to leadership or understanding things that I just understand inside of my own personal development journey. And when I when I woke up from the dream, my, my feeling was, ah, I wish I had a time machine to take to the 30-year-old version of myself who in six years would be assuming this opportunity to lead the sales organization. I wish I could give that 30-year-old all of these books that I got when I turned 40 or 42 because the the way that I would have approached leading, like true leadership, I, I if I made a mistake, I spent the majority of my time with my highest performers. I didn't invest as much in the people that needed the investment most. And I struggled with... I, w- I had a lot of courage. I could tell people exactly what I felt and what I knew they needed to do better or different, but I didn't have that compassion for how they might need to hear it in a way that I think a more mature version of me certainly does. And it's just, a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I'm not going back to corporate. It doesn't matter what the opportunity is, but were I to, I would just be a fundamentally different person inside of that space because of the way the last four years have really changed the way that i Think and feel and operate in almost every part of my life.
1: Dave, you and I have had somewhat similar journeys, right? I, although I was working in a leadership development firm, doesn't mean I was a great leader. I, I mean, I think I was a competent leader, and generally, people I think would give me good scores, but some would not. And and like you, I have left corporate America. I'm an entrepreneur now, a writer and a speaker. Um, and you and I have big personalities. We cast big shadows, right? I mean, it's a little hard to shine out from under us because we are, like you said, we both don't lack confidence. But like you, as I look back. I think my biggest leadership challenge was, I don't think I realized that a leader's job is to achieve results with and through other people. I thought my job was just to get it done, do it myself, occasionally rush in and save the day. I love a good crisis. I do my best work in a crisis. And if one doesn't exist, I'll cook one up, right? I love the adrenaline. I love the dopamine. And then I sort of, honestly, I'm embarrassed to admit that in my late 40s, it clicked no, 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 my job is to build capability in them, is to build capacity in them, is to let them shine, is to actually hope that they eclipse me because then I'm being a great leader. Of course, not every organization values that and sets that culture up, but I hope to transfer some of that wisdom that I've gleaned now into my parenting skills with my boys. So that's the ultimate leadership
0: challenge. I, I remember when you came to our company headquarters for a little fireside chat uh, 18 months ago. So there were two things that just have stuck with me since. And I want you just to bless the listeners with those. One of them was this idea of pre-forgiving your colleagues. And the other was this idea of being loyal to the absent. The latter of the two to me is like, holy cow. I've all, I've never been able to not, not think of it. That's like a double negative twice, but I can't, I can't not think about it. It's just crazy. Well the first you you kept it
1: nicely is this idea of pre-forgiveness is that you know someone's going to say something that annoys you and you're going to do something that pisses somebody off. We're humans. I think most people come to work virtually or hybrid or live in person wanting to do a good job and wanting to collaborate. We bring all of our baggage with us and so this idea of pre-forgiveness is to recognize that people are going to say and do things that are going to be annoying and you got to kind of pre-forgive them, including your mother-in-law. Or your neighbor or your rabbi or your imam or your priest. People are gonna say things in your life that aren't gonna be exactly what you think or how you believe. Pre-forgiveness does not mean that you accept less from people or you or you accept foul treatment. It's just you recognize everybody's got something going on that you don't know about. And most people act the way they do for a reason. Most people are not sociopaths. Most people have a bill they can't pay. They've got a teenage son vaping. They've got a father-in-law moving into dementia. They've got something going on in their life and they're stressed and they're doing their best. At least what they think their best is. So don't take that too far. But this idea of pre-forgiveness will help you avoid a lot of conflict. You know what? I'm gonna let that roll off my back. my back. They say it seven times and it becomes like a microaggression then I'm going to call them out on it because I'm a courageous person who practices diplomacy and courage. Now, to the second point, this is the cancer in every organization. Every company's, every organization's biggest cancer is gossip. And that is people like you and I that speak about people when they are absent differently than we do when they were present. This concept is called being loyal to the absent, is that you're not going to practice duplicity, but you're going to practice loyalty when someone is out of the room. When someone is on a plane, you're going to speak about them exactly as if they were sitting right next to you in the meeting. By the way, that does not mean you don't tell people what you think about them and their performance or their character or their contribution. You just tell it to them. And if you hear someone else disparaging them in their absence, you perhaps be a transition figure. Don't take the high moral ground and shut them down. Just simply say, you know, can I stop you there? I know your intention isn't to Offend or diminish Dave, but I'll bet you if he heard that, he probably would take it that way. So I just tell you, I encourage you tell that to Dave. Have you told that to Dave? Well, no, I know. Tell that to Dave. He deserves that. And by the way, if I find the same experience with Dave, I'll tell him as well. I I don't mean to embarrass you at all. I've done the same thing. I'm just like be a transition figure. Don't don't claim the metaphorical first pew in the church because a lot of people do that. They rush in and sit down metaphorically, right, and gain the high. Don't do that. Just be a light, not a judge. Be a
0: model not a critic. So good. And by the way, if that was the only thing that anyone took away from this entire conversation, it would fundamentally change the way that your culture, your personal brand, the way that your team wants to work for you went better for the rest of time. I mean, like that single thing in and of itself is worth the price of admission. I am here for it. So I am, I am super, super excited that this book is coming out. Master Mentors, 30 transformative insights from our greatest minds. You have assigned an individual insight to each of these individual contributors. And I am curious if there were stories for you as the gatherer of, as the person who's now trying to shine a light on and bring these to uh, as wide an audience as possible, as broad a platform as possible, that to you stood out, and are the things that you can't get unstuck from your brain?
1: This is a book that is an easy, breezy, fast read, right? You're not going to find any HBR longitudinal studies in this book, right? There's no data, maybe one statistic. I think I footnoted it. Uh, Susan David, Dr. Susan David, the acclaimed psychologist from Harvard Medical School, wrote a book called Emotional Agility, She's one of the most famous TED Talks of all time. It was with Dr. David. She taught me the difference between Our emotions, our feelings, and our opinions and facts. Duh. Facts are facts, and emotions and opinions and feelings are those. And both are valuable. But if you're like me and you're a highly emotional person, I often choose to make my feelings into facts. And I often disregard facts because I validate my opinions more than. So that was a valuable leadership lesson for me, again, at my mid 40s, to recognize when am I confusing emotions with facts? When am I making an argument to support my feelings as if they were facts. Dr. Covey taught me that humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Mm. And I try to enter my conversations now with, am I trying to be right or am I trying to find out what is right? And oftentimes I'm more concerned with being right.
0: Being human's the worst.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or the best. You know Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. She wrote an amazing book with Clayton Christensen called How Will You Measure Your Life. And in this book, they share a statistic from my one statistic from a Harvard Business professor that said that ninety. Listen to this, Dave. Ninety-three percent of all organizations that ultimately achieve financial success do so with an emergent strategy, not the deliberate strategy they set out with. Think about that. Only seven percent of the time was Dave Hollis's original idea for his company, the one that became successful. He had to pivot. He had to change. He had to be open to feedback. He had to listen to others. 93% of the time, your big ego idea is not the one that's going to light the world on fire. That was an amazing insight from yeah. you know, Karen Dillon in her book. Let me share one more. I can share Brendan Bouchard. He's got so much. You know His idea of PQO, prolific quality output, PQO. Read Brendan's book to learn more about PQO. But here's one I think um, I'll share from Stedman Graham, right? A dear friend of mine, Oprah's, you know, life partner. Stedman's written many books on identity. Stedman dropped the Dave Hollis level truth bomb. And I'm going to share one from you. And he said, you know, most of us spend our time trying to fulfill the identities that others have placed on us. Our parents, our brothers, our headmaster, our minister. Said, like, no, no, stop doing that. Go create your own identity. Go create the identity for you. Stop trying to fulfill your whole life. Stop spending your life fulfilling the identity your parents placed on you because they were an engineer, because they had a four-year degree, because they built their 401k and never took any risk. Go create your identity. I think it's 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 subtle but profound.
0: Yeah, it Last really lady, is.
1: I'm gonna share yours, and you're not gonna like it, but I'm gonna share it anyway. In your book. Get out of your own way. You shared the story about the letter your then wife Rachel wrote to you about how you've come from Disney. I'm embellishing, you know, top floor, expense accounts, minions, staff, all of that. Those are my words, not hers or yours. That you came to the company and you sort of needed to come down to the level. You needed to work in the system, not just on the system. And you had to kind of, she had a courageous conversation through a letter void of emotion to say, hey. You're a good leader. You're just, you need to become more relatable. You need to become more accessible. You need to become working in the system, not so much on the system. I, I'm using my own words, right? Your book is a masterpiece. I read it in bed with my wife. It took me weeks because we would read four pages and put it down and debrief it, right? That's the insight I share from you. But let me share a different insight I don't share in the book. This is for your listeners. This is maybe a two-minute story. Dave, just deal with it. I wrote a book called Management Mess to Leadership Success. And uh, the book did okay, right? It sold 15,000, 20,000 copies. Not too bad for a no name author the first time. And Donald Miller, a mutual friend of ours, had me on his podcast. And uh, Rachel Hollis listened to that podcast, ordered the book. And you and Rachel, on your morning program back two years ago, held it up. And you reached out to me and you said, Come, you want to do a fireside. I had vaguely heard of both of you. Honest to God, you weren't kind of in the corporate space. So you weren't on my radar. Your brands were exploding. There was no one on a faster trajectory than. Dave Hollis and Rachel Hollis. I wing my way down to um, to um, Austin. You graciously allow me to take over your office for an hour and share some insights. And then as I'm leaving, leaving, I say to you and your wife, hey, I see you're having a conference in uh, uh, Charleston in a few weeks. If any of your speakers get the flu, <clears throat> I'd be happy to come down. I think I was such an idiot. I said, I'll even wave my fee, which I don't think anybody gets paid. I thought I was being magnanimous. I'll even wave my fee." And so I followed up with the two of you. You had a full conference book. There was no space for me. I followed up with the two of you. And you and your business partner at the time, Rachel Hollis, said, OK, come on down. We'll take a risk on you. I come down. I speak for 30 minutes. Um, I feel like I did a decent job because you know hundreds of people asked for my autograph. And here's the point. You two were a transition figure in my life. I had, had an amazing corporate career, made lots of money but I was breaking out on my own stage and you and Rachel gave me a platform for of 7,000 people that I had never had before is you shined a light on me that had never been shined on me by anybody else in a global company, spoken all over the world, but never in front of an audience like that. You took a risk on me. You gave me a platform that no one else ever had. And I share this story hundreds of times a year that you modeled, What every leader should be modeling, which is finding someone that you have a little bit of faith in, but you're not quite sure. You don't rush in and save the day, but you give them just enough rope not to hang themselves, but to go out there and perform. And I tell you, Dave, you are a transition figure in my life. It was you inviting me down to your rise event at the time and showing the faith and confidence in me, kind of pre-forgiving me not to screw it up. And it was it was the beginning of my brand building outside of this corporate company and to you, I'm forever indebted. That's a true yeah. story, no embellishment.
0: That's amazing. By the way though, this is amazing. And I actually think maybe the like most interesting part of the story is that if you didn't tell me, I would have never known. Like, Because it wouldn't have even occurred to me that we were a participant in anything yeah. that was you taking this exit off of the highway that you'd previously been on. And for us, you were just a massive value Like, So it's an interesting thing. I don't know that if we hadn't had you come to the office, if we hadn't started doing this thing to try and create culture around learning, if you hadn't been fantastic in front of our team of around 60 people then at the time that it would have made as much sense to say yeah we'll put you on the right. stage but right, it well was enough. such an it was just such a like a naturally flowing really interesting conversation that if our team could take something from it and if we as individual leaders inside of that organization could walk away with stuff that we couldn't get out of our stinking head then maybe it would also have an effect on the business leaders that were being, uh, you know, come together in this conference setting. What? What? A, what a crazy thing! You well, just you never don't know. is That people, countless thousands of people, have
1: gone on to follow me on my social media and buy my books and hire me for conferences because they saw me at your event. Two things to learn from this: one is people can't help you if you don't ask. Dave Hollis can't help you if he doesn't know how to help you. And two, you took a risk on me. You invested in me, and hopefully I delivered enough to where it was not an embarrassment. And those are two valuable lessons I think everybody can learn from.
0: Oh, man, what a story. That's so rad. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate that. Ah, And I'm excited for whatever it ends up meaning it comes next, because obviously, like, I love what you've written here, but you've got nothing but upside in non- corporate on your own entrepreneurial life because you're you're a killer on that stage
1: well I appreciate that I am I'm still an advisor to Franklin Covey I stepped off the executive team but I'm still leading their book strategy I still host their podcast now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast you're joining me for your second appearance in a few weeks because I'm excited about your next book but I I, I mean this genuinely that you manifest what it means to be a transition figure Dr. Covey talked about this is we all have these in our lives. And oftentimes they don't know them. They don't know that they are a transition figure. So I think when someone is a transition figure, hijack their podcast and share for three or four minutes that story so that they know this is what they did and they can become more aware of it. They can name it. They can do more of it and realize it's the right thing.
0: As a part of my launch for my book, I'm doing this 13 weeks of courage each week. There's a different free coaching each week of coaching. There's five giveaways that we're doing. There's autograph books, but then one winner each week is getting a one-on-one zoom with me. And when I like unveil this plan to the team, but the publishing team is like, you're going to do what? That seems like a lot of time. That seems like a lot of time to invest, not just in coaching, but ultimately also one-on-one coaching every week, 13 times, you're going to have to spend time with a, a person you don't know. Like, are you sure? And what's interesting is like you are affirming that this is something that I am sure of because I look forward almost more than any other single appointment in my week to the weekly winner one-on-one Zoom conversation because of this idea that maybe, gosh, I, like I hope this doesn't sound conceited, but like that maybe just maybe I might be able to in a conversation be some kind of a transitional pivot spark kind of moment. For someone who, as an entrepreneur, trying to figure out how to find that 90, 93% new idea that ultimately takes their business that's just middling into something that ends up going in the right direction, that maybe it comes out of a conversation with someone with some objective eyes like myself. I, it's like, it's what gets me up in the morning. I love it. Dave, uh,
1: you, you model everything I talk about and all the guests on the podcast that I host. I'm often asked, so what are all these master mentors have in common? And I say two things. I mean, whether these are big names, Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, Donald Miller, General McChrystal, these are not small names. How you got in it, I have no idea. But you know, I I agree. My gift to you. I say they have two things. One is they have an abundance mentality. There is not a scarce thought in their mind. They wake up every day and they say, how can I create value? How can I help others achieve their dreams? They have an abundance mentality. Second, they have an indefatigable work ethic. There is no such thing as overnight fame. There is overnight success. You know, people that might think that Dave Hollis burst from the scene three years ago, four years ago. Dave, how many years at Disney? (laughs) 17. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So if you want to call Dave Hollis's success overnight, well, last time I checked, that was more than 20 years building and failing and building and failing and building and failing. And I just think you, again, are a great manifestation of of being a model for others, being a transition figure. Your new book that's going to come out is going to rock the world. I was talking with Liz Wiseman, the author of Multiplier. She's launching a new book called Impact Players. And I was interviewing Colin Cowley, the famous entertainer and uh, events. He's launched a new book today called The Gold Standard. We all agreed we can't get any press because Dave Hollis is sucking it all up because everyone wants to buy Dave Hollis' book.
0: You are you're the best type person, honestly, in the world. People are going to think that I'm feeding you lines. I mean, come true. on, come on.
1: All I want is Our- to go skiing in Utah with you because all your friends in Utah get all your time
0: keep keep saying it out loud we'll get coached to get us a, a, a trip up to that salmon ranch uh all right if someone buys master mentors do you have like a single line what 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 is the what's the promise of this book
1: this book is going to hit everyone differently i think most authors write the book that they need to read so i wrote this book it's a bit episodic there is a chapter on brain health there's a chapter on understanding your peak your trough and your recovery there's a chapter on forgiveness, on ownership, right? This is this is something for everyone. I, I really think it's the next Chicken Soup for the Soul series. I have 10 of these coming out over the next five years, two a year every year for the next five years, all based on guests that I found insightful on the podcast. So there's something for everyone, light, easy, breezy chapters. And what I might find to be a transformative insight, you might not. But if you're a parent, and you weren't a year ago, it might be for you. If you're a former leader, if you're widowed, widow, divorced, or you're an entrepreneur, going back to the corporate market, I do think there is something for everyone in this book. We know that the whole world is not our marketplace, but I purposely wrote this to reach a broad audience kind of where they are. Not every insight will you find transformative, but I'll guarantee you you'll find a couple that'll be worth reading it.
0: Yeah, what I would say too, I like the way that it's written in that you can read a single chapter in a very short period of time. If you find in that chapter something interesting, you now have something that you get to add to your reading list, right? right. Like if you've never heard of Kim Scott, you read about Kim Scott, all of a sudden radical candor becomes a thing that you can add to your to be read list on the the, uh, nightstand. And uh, it's part of what I love. If you put it down and it takes you three days to pick it back up, you don't have to reread right. what you last read. Exactly. You get to start fresh with the brand new Thank chapter you. and Thank keep you. on keeping on. So um, it's a great read, easy read, fun read, informative read, but also something that like a trail of breadcrumbs will lead you to your next read, which I also appreciate too. Uh, what's next for you? I mean, obviously you're going to write more of these, but do you know what else is going on?
1: I do. So I, uh, let's see, no more children. That's for sure.
0: No, no, no. Nope.
1: Nope. Uh, let's see what's next for me. I'm hosting a new venture called bookclub.com. So Franklin Covey has a new book club on bookclub.com called Effective Leadership. I'm the host of that series, highlighting great authors in the company, keeping the podcast going, writing a new book called Job Mess to Career Success. It's the third book in the Mess to Success series. There are 10 of those also. Something big I'm doing is I just, you're going you're to laugh at this. I just signed a deal with a publisher for 145 books. What? These are small books called the Ultimate Career Guide. So I have researched the fastest-growing 145 careers in the world, and I'm writing a book with a co-author: wind turbine technician, um, you know, nurse, anesthesiist, you know, cosmetology. So I'm writing a short book about 20,000 words on each career with an expert that's in that job want to become a patent attorney? Great. Here's the ups, here's the downs, here is you pivot, here's your pivot out of patent law, 9 years in. And so I'm very excited to publish three of these a quarter, 12 a year for the next 6 or 7 years and really help people understand how to make a very deliberate intentional decision about the perhaps second most important, you know, thing in their life. One is, you know, your life's partner, should it be a spouse or a partner or someone other else and your career. So I want people to take Deliberate control over their career, stop accidentally bouncing around. And so the Ultimate Career Guide series is going to be a magnificent and massive undertaking in the coming. So, if you find out what it is you're
0: doing, I might have you co author one. I mean, like, I struggle to commit to a book a year. I mean, like, I am at a book a year right now, and I am doing a kids' book in February of 22. I saw. I saw. I'm I'm trying to decide like, oh, does that mean that I get off the hook for another nonfiction book in 22? Or do I actually have to finish what I've yeah, started? But your books bulk? sell
1: a million copies. Mine sell like 30,000. So back to Brendan Bouchard, prolific quality output,
0: right? This is oh, man. you. Oh, man, you're a prolific production human being. 145 books here, 10 books there, 10 books there. I'm excited to see all of it. All right. Last question we ask every human being who comes on this show, if you could leave our guest today with a single key takeaway. It could be an idea, a question, or an actionable piece of advice. What is the one thing that you would leave with folks today? Nearly all
1: conflict comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Nearly all, if not all, conflict comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. So-and-so wants you to do this, you don't wanna do that. And so that's why it's so important in high stakes conversations to declare your intent upfront because people will ascribe intent to you. Lacking facts, people make stuff up. We all have motives, we all have hidden agendas. Even the best of us have hidden agendas. So any great parent, partner, leader needs to integrate into their vocabulary the phrase Allow me to to first declare my intent. Dave, my intent is not to hijack your podcast. My intent is to be excited about both yours and my book. So please, please forgive me if my answers are too long. You get the point. It doesn't mean you give yourself permission to behave in ways that are self-serving. It just makes sure that other people know what your intent is because you tend to judge yourself on your intent, but you judge others on their technique. So others are judging you on your technique unless you declare your intent. You Ooh. will see your conflict plummet if you step outside your comfort zone and say, my intent is not to hijack your project. My intent is to get answers to these three questions. And once they have them, I'm going to help you land your project early and under budget.
0: So good. Well, I've always said- your relationships. Yeah, I've always said people only get upset when they are surprised. And so declaring intent ahead of time is yep. such a way to manage expectations. Now there isn't any surprise. Now you know exactly what you're dealing with. Such a good word. If someone does not yet currently follow you, if they're interested in learning about the 4,000 book projects you have coming up, where do you send people on the internet to find out more about you?
1: Uh, Scott, is my version. It's called my Pluto to your Saturn, uh, scottjeffreymiller.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Zoom, TikTok, my, my, my publicist says. But Dave, thank you for your spotlight. Thanks for sharing some of your gravitas with me. I appreciate you. You are the essence of an abundant person and I'm glad to call you my friend.
0: Uh, I appreciate you. I am so grateful to call you a friend and I'm excited for people to get their hands on this book get to know you better and be smarter because of the blessing of the work that you do in this world. Thank you, Scott, so much for being here. Thank you listener for listening. If you got anything from this episode and how the heck could you have not, I hope that you'll take a picture of the recording that you are listening to on the device. You're listening to it. Send into the internet, into Instagram, something that tags both myself and Scott so that we can see what you learned, what you took away. Share with every single person you've ever met in your entire life. Between (laughs) now and next week, declare your intention to the people you're dealing with. It will dramatically reduce the kind of crisis you experience in your world between now and next week. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you on the next episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.